From the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center at the University of Notre Dame, it's Vantage Point with Augustine Fuentes. Welcome to Vantage Point from the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Augustine Fuentes. In the fall of 2015, Pope Francis visited the United States. Welcomed on the White House lawn by President Obama, Pope Francis addressed a special joint meeting of the United States Congress. The very next day, Pope Francis visited and addressed the UN General Assembly before ending his whirlwind tour in Philadelphia for a world meeting of families. This came off a recent trip to Cuba, where the Pope was fundamental in restoring relationships between the United States and Cuba. In his speech to the UN, fresh off his first entire encyclical, Laudato Si, Pope Francis endorsed the Sustainable Development Goals. This blessing by Pope Francis might have ushered in a new era of sustainable development. This pope is credited with having a humble, less formal approach to the papacy than his predecessors, favoring simpler vestments, even washing the feet of refugees. His emphasis on God's mercy and a concern for the poor has made him very popular with some, but his actions have drawn criticism, even from those within the Vatican. Among some conservative Catholics, there's a feeling of uncertainty, absent since the often chaotic aftermath of the Second Vatican Council. While committed to interfaith dialogue, Vatican transparency, and mercy in response to moral issues, the Church has been slow to change any doctrine. The intense media coverage and popularity of Pope Francis has reopened some questions about the Roman Catholic Church in the 21st century. To tackle these questions, we're joined by three theologians today on Vantage Point to ask the question, what is the Church of Pope Francis? Today I'm joined by Lawrence Cunningham, who is the John A. O'Brien Professor of Theology Emeritus at the University of Notre Dame. At Notre Dame, he served as the chair of the theology department, was awarded the Edmund P. Joyce CSE Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching, and is a founding member of the International Thomas Merton Society. His areas of expertise include the Catholic Church, the Pope, the Papacy, the History of Christianity. He is the author and editor of over 25 books and often writes for Commonweal Magazine. Father Brian E. Daly, SJ, is Catherine F. Husking Professor of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. As a historical theologian, Father Daly's primary academic field is patristics, the study of the Fathers of the Church. Daly received the Ratzinger Prize of Theology in 2012 for his work. Committed to ecumenical dialogue, Father Daly is the Executive Secretary of the Orthodox Roman Catholic Consultation in North America. Professor Celia Dean Drummond is a professor of theology at the University of Notre Dame with a concurrent appointment in the College of Science. She is also the director of the Center for Theology, Science, and Human Flourishing at the University of Notre Dame. Dean Drummond holds both a doctorate in plant physiology and in systematic theology. Uh, during her scientific career, she published numerous scientific articles and since then has published numerous articles and books focusing on systematic theology, biological sciences, practical ethical discussions in bioethics and environmental ethics. Thank you for joining me on the program. Is there something new in this church of Pope Francis? Well, uh, certainly the election of uh, the Pope in itself was new in the following ways. He's the first non-European to be elected to the papacy since the 8th century. Secondly, he's um, the first pope to come from Latin America. Thirdly, he's the first Jesuit pope to be elected uh, in the history 
of, um, the, of the modern Catholic Church. And then I think the second thing is that um, both by temperament and style and education, uh, he's a very different pope than was um, Pope Benedict and Pope John Paul II since he is not an academic and therefore I think the the taste of his papacy is going to be inevitably shaped by the experiences uh, that he himself had coming to us uh, from a non-European context. Other day. I would agree, I think, with most of what Larry has said. It strikes me, as I watch Pope Francis and read what he says, that what is really different is his style, his way of approaching his duties, his way of presiding at the liturgy, his way of preaching. Uh, the content, as, as is clear if you read his writings, is very much in the centrist tradition of Catholic social teaching. And most of it really often cites earlier popes, Pope Benedict, Pope John Paul, and going way back to the 19th century. So I don't think the actual substance of what is coming out in terms of teaching is particularly new, but he does emphasize different points, I think. And he does it in a way that certainly is different from what we've seen before, which I find personally exciting and refreshing. Some people, I think, find it disturbing, and that's understandable. Uh, a friend of mine who is uh, from Argentina says that a lot of this is rather typical of the way Argentines like to speak in public, like to shake people up a little bit, to put the cat among the pigeons, as the English would say. And this is, in a sense, a kind of rhetorical top us, a rhetorical trick of many people in the Argentine society. And I think, too, as Larry says, his preparation, his academic background or his intellectual background is certainly different from many of his predecessors. He's not a philosopher or a theologian, as our last two popes have been. He's a very intelligent man, deeply read, very interested in culture, but in a broader swath of culture, perhaps, than either Pope Benedict or Pope Francis or Pope, uh, Pope uh, John Paul. Uh, he's someone who taught literature as a young Jesuit. Um, he was involved in the leadership of his province in Argentina. And I think he wants to use the imagination and use the kind of literary traditions of the world to speak to people and to make his points. Um, so he's not really going about things in the same way. But I think the, the, the content is, at least as I understand it, substantially pretty much what we've had and, and should be so, I think. Celia. Okay, yes, I, I, I would run along with most of what's been said so far. Um, I think it's really fascinating that he's the first pope to take the name Francis. Uh, he's Francis I, as it were. Um, and, and, the, and the Franciscan tradition is very important to him for, for various reasons, but particularly because Francis of Assisi, whose, whose name he, he took in order to call himself Pope Francis, emphasizes uh, poverty, um, peacemaking, and creation. And those were the three pillars, as it were, of his ministry right from the very beginning and expressed in the encyclical Laudato Si. So I think that, in a sense, he, he really has embedded himself in, in the Franciscan tradition, but also sees himself coming out of the Latin American, Argentinian version of the Latin American tradition as well, which is again different. So a while ecological conversion and uh, concern for the environment was in, or ha was in Pope John Paul II and also in Benedict XVI, it's gone from the periphery to the center 
And I think that has made a massive difference. So, and he's enlarged it as well. I've never seen so much science in any encyclical before. I've never seen so much accurate science. So although he's not, and he has a training in chemistry, so although he's not uh, technically an academic theologian, what he's doing is really fascinating for someone like me who's been an eco-theologian and working in this area for the last 25 or so years. So those ideas aren't particularly new for eco-theologians, but it's the first time that a pope has ever made it central for Christian, a Christian to be ecologically informed and concerned about the environment as well as concerned with poverty and other big questions of, according to social justice and, and Catholic social thought. Let's run with that for a moment. I, I want to come back to his being not a European pope, which I think is very important. But this, this theme, this narrative of ecology um, in this moment of what some people are calling the Anthropocene, right, where, where humans have had such a substantive impact that we're globally shaping the climate, um, how does that resonate with the place that the church is today? Is this aberrant, or is this a logical outcome? Well, uh, I'd like to go back to this uh, point that uh, Celia made about him taking the name Francis, which I also find very interesting. On the day that he was elected, I got a call in the morning uh, from National Public Radio asking why popes changed their names. And I knew the answer to that question and gave it to the lady and gave her my telephone number. And I went on in the afternoon and I was in the dentist chair <laughs> when uh, I, a telephone was brought in uh, saying National Public Radio wants to speak to you because they have, we have a new pope and he took the name Francis. And I said, well, I had my mouth was all full of instruments, so I said, I'll, I'll call you back in five or ten minutes. And it, you know, it did not occur to me that he took the name Francis, meaning Francis of Assisi. I thought Francis Xavier or Francis de Sales or something like that, because I thought that Francis of Assisi was just a level a little bit high to aspire to, to take that name, and, and then he did take it. Why, why do you think that? Well, I mean, um, you know, even Voltaire liked Francis of Assisi. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty hard to, 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 you know, because of the charm of his life, and especially, I think, the kind of romantic uh, view of uh, Francis. But Francis did have, at least he acquired, this burning love for creation itself. And uh, it didn't strike me at the time, but it seems to me interesting. And I think Celia made a very good point that he should bring from the side to the center these kinds of concerns, which after all, harmonize very well with the traditional Catholic understanding of the beauty of creation. The creation is the first book that teaches us about God, and secondly, about the care for the earth, and so on and so forth. So I think Celia made a, a, a point that got me rethinking everything I was thinking about um, uh, uh, Bergoglio when he was uh, first elected to the papacy. But you know, also along with that, I think, uh, both in St. Francis and also in the behavior and the writings of Pope Francis. I mean, there is this apparent fusion of a love and reverence for creation as a place that God has shown to us, and also a concern for, for sharing the goods of creation among everybody. 
as equitably as possible, you know. And that may strike us as, as not necessarily connected, but I think it, both in the life of Francis and also in some of the early fathers of the church, the guys I work with, I mean, it's very much a, a concern that if God has placed us in this world which has such wonderful things and which is meant to sustain us, then we have to be able to let people use this and not try to possess any more than we actually need for our own sustenance. And that's I guess, one of the basic themes that comes out in Laudato Si. Certainly, we, we all have a need to have access to creative things. The question is trying to build up a kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a deposit in these things, a possession that gives us a, a control over more than we actually need to use. Yes, and I, I think that uh, in addition to that, what's really fascinating is that he's very, very critical of the way certain science and technologies have been used or rather abused. Um, and the poten yet the potential of science. Uh, so the, there's a potential of ecological understanding, of anthropological understanding, of understanding different religious traditions and so on, which is very refreshing. But alongside that, he's very critical of what he calls the technocratic paradigm, which is, in a, he sees in a way as, as somehow the heritage of, the, of scientific modernity and the Enlightenment and so on. So, so I think there's this sort of double message in here. So. While on the one hand he's he's very positive about protecting the environment and the created order, um, on on the other hand he's also quite critical and negative about some of the the applications that it's been put to and the way there there is, if you like, a narrowing of our thinking in economic terms. So it takes over some of the methodologies of science and, and, and is framed in a particular way, which is not so helpful. So I think there's this quite complex combination in the encyclical which speaks of the of the real complexity that we find ourselves in in in, in the uh, in the 21st century is, is it fair to say then um, and the way you're laying this out all three of you that um, it could be the context or we could interpret this as Pope Francis using ecology or using this broad scale thing to actually get across a multitude of different kinds of Catholic teachings is right. that Yes, uh, and I'd like to just follow up. Uh, one other thing is that if you have a person like Pope Francis who saw the poverty, uh, and I hate to use the term third world, but to say the, the, the poverty of the dispossessed in the slums of uh, Buenos Aires, uh, which he was keenly interested in, one of the things that if you see that world up close at least according to all the commentators I've ever read, you also see that ecological unbalance hurts them the most. Just take the example of water. Now we have a small example of it in Flint, Michigan, of, of uh, a depressed city not having adequate water for its citizens and whatnot. But the lack of clean water kills literally thousands of children every day. Um, in, in many parts of the world. Or you think of uh, the inability of small farmers to operate because they cannot function at a, f a level financially feasible for them in terms of all the inputs that are required in agriculture today. And the Pope, after all, he may live in Rome, but he has people coming to see him from all over the Catholic world, and so he may be sensitive to those issues, not only by what he's experienced himself, but what is reported to him on a daily basis. So there's a profoundly moral issue that has to do with ecology. In fact, 
my sense of his writings and his sermons, and especially the new encyclical, or most recent encyclical, is that it's really a, a moral exhortation. I mean, there is, as Celia says, an unusual degree, an unprecedented degree of scientific expertise that's invoked here. And I presume he has got this from various experts who have advised him. But the message that's new is, in a sense, for, for Catholics, the, the moral message, or at least the emphasis on ethical values um, that grow out of this uh, recognition of the, the scientific and technological situation that we're in. Uh, so what people are meant to take away from it is a call to think more deeply about how they use the things in the material world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's also, I'd say, a, a call for ecological conversion, which is like a change of heart and mind, um, so that it's, it's one thing to, to think of the moral problems and the moral issues that are there and recognized. It's another thing to think, well, how are we going to change to get to the right. point where we are all acting both individually and collectively for the common good? And I think it's that message and the fact that he was in the, as on the tip of Argentina watching the ice caps melt, as it were, in a way that maybe none of us have had that kind of, those kinds of experiences. So it was the, it was the combination of all these different factors together that make it, <coughs> makes him see in a holistic way, in a way that maybe some other popes have not, because he doesn't have the trappings of, of, of the papacy and the other educational background that maybe have, have been limiting in, in some of the other um, the popes we've, we've had in the past. It's almost like you're making a very practical argument here yeah. for his application. Is he a particularly practical pope? Yes. Yeah, yeah definitely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. He's a teacher, I think, and also a pastor, a preacher. And, and that really gives an edge to his message. Yeah, he had a lot of firsthand experience of being with the people. I mean, that, I think that's an important yeah. point to keep in mind. This is Vantage Point from the University of Notre Dame. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Vantage Point from the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Augustine Fuentes, and we're talking about Pope Francis. So I said I was going to come back to this, and I'd like to. Uh, pope Francis is the first non-European pope. Uh, how, how important is that for Catholicism in the 21st century? Well, the first thing that I would say is that it's important, first of all, for the papacy itself. I mean, here you have this long tradition uh, over a millennium of European popes thinking in European fashion and so on and so forth. And there was a kind of a, a style of the papacy um, that presupposed a kind of a European culture. And what Now, Pope John Paul II changed it in a way by speaking a Slavic voice, a Slavic European culture, and he was very aware of that. He changed the conception of Europe. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He <laughs> wanted Europe to be understood in a quite different uh, fashion. But here you have a pope now who's, he had lived in Europe, he had lived in Germany, he had lived in Ireland uh, for a while, uh, but here was a pope now who comes out of a different culture even though it, he and the culture itself had deep European roots. So he's going to have a perspective that's going to be different that comes out both out of his own instincts as a pastor and as his life as an Argentinian, I believe. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I would agree on that. I, I think um, we have to remember that the Catholic Church is made up 
nowadays largely of people from the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, if you include Africa and Latin America, and if you include parts of India in that, um, the great body of Catholic faithful now are not Europeans or North Americans. And I think people have said this for a long time. There's been efforts to make cardinals from this, these parts of the world, to get voices heard in the various uh, offices in the Vatican. But here we have somebody leading the church and, and doing it in a very articulate way who actually comes from this quite unique culture. I mean, a culture which is Latin American, but also is, I gather, among Latin American countries quite unique, largely European, heavily Italian and German and so on. So there's a mix of all kinds of different voices and streams in what he brings. And I think that gives his perspective a kind of a certain distinctive character. He can look upon financial issues or economic issues, issues of the environment, from the perspective of this immensely uh, rich and well-endowed country, which is also has suffered a great deal through the, through the decades from its relations with uh, both Europe and North America. Yes, I, I think that the, the fact that he comes from Latin America is very significant, especially for those who have been working in impoverished communities for many years. Before um, ben, Pope Benedict XVI was elected, his name also came up as a possibility, and then there was a certain degree of disappointment when he, when he wasn't, wasn't elected pope. And so you can imagine that after those years of waiting, when he did finally become pope, there was, there was jubilation in the streets. In other words, there was, there was a, a real sea change. It was as if there was a sigh of enormous relief that at last someone was in a position of power who could perhaps represent their interests rather better than, than previous popes have been able to do. And I think that he, in a sense, stands for those who are marginalized in any society, and that's why he has such a huge popular following, because he seems to be able to communicate with those who are perhaps pushed to the edge of, of, of communities um, and not taken seriously enough. And, and he, he does not just only represent the the Latin American Ar Argentinian communities, but he goes out of his way to try and welcome those who are, who are perhaps on the, the edges, people who have been discriminated against through their sexual orientation or through their gender or through all, all kinds of other ways in which they've been discriminated. He wants to try and create a style of the papacy which actually puts, puts people who are in those situations more in the, in the center of, of the church. Well, this, this is, is a, a good point to jump to this next question which I had. Uh, you point out his interest in those marginalized, those on the edges. He's also one of the most popular popes in historical record with non-Catholics. Mm -hmm. And a lot has been said about his reaching out outside of Christianity and Catholicism and his connections, and within. Uh, uh, there's a, a very important uh, issue that he has with the Orthodox Church. But before we get to that, I would like to talk a little bit further about his reaching out towards the marginalized and how this reflects on the history uh, of popes, but where this might be leading the Catholic Church in the 21st century. Yeah, well, there are so many aspects to that question that it's really kind of hard to answer. But let me just say that it, it, if you look at his life, I've read a couple of his, uh, a couple biographies um, uh, of, of the current pope. When he was in Argentina, he was a person who was extremely open to people who were outside the Catholic cosmos or outside the Catholic community. 
He had very close relationship with uh, the Jewish community, which if you know the history of modern Argentina is not a happy history. Uh, uh, there was a lot of anti-Semitic violence um, in Buenos Aires in particular, but uh, in Argentina as a whole. He had very good relations with the Orthodox community. He had very close friends. His, the, the, the man who was his business manager was an evangelical Protestant, and they used to meet together and me meditate on scriptures and pray together, even though he was an evangelical. Now, you tend to think of evangelicals and Catholics that kind of loggerheads over souls in Central and Latin America, but um, he, he didn't take those away. But one of the most important things he did was he uh, got a cadre of young priests and he sent them into the slums, sent them into the areas which were extremely dangerous, uh, which were largely unchurched, largely forgotten, etc., and he kept very close contact with those people. So he, 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 never, he never struck one as being a kind of a company man. Uh, that is, uh, that he was a person who could reach out a little bit. So I, I will simply stop there. I think other people have other examples. Well, you know, one of the things that always strikes me is that he seems so opposed to elitism in most of its forms, you know, clerical elitism and academic elitism. I can tell you a few anecdotes of that. Financial and economic elitism. Any kind of control of the wider society by small privileged groups. Uh, a friend of mine, this friend I mentioned before who is an Argentinian Jesuit and who has followed him from afar, isn't necessarily his greatest fan, but admires his intelligence and his leadership skills says, well, you have to remember his origins in the Peronist movement. As a young man, he was very active with the, uh, not so much the political uh, backers of Juan Peron, but a lot of his um, uh, supporters in the Catholic Church who really wanted to join in his populist movement. And Peron at least began with his wife Evita as a real populist leader. And my friend says, you got to remember, like, like many political leaders in Argentina, he's a peronista. So you have peronistas on the left and peronistas on the right. And he said, Bergoglio has always been a, a peronista kind of on the right. He stands up for, for Catholic principles, but wants to do it in a populist way by talking to unions, talking to the poor, talking to people who are not academics or university professors, and build a kind of a movement out of that. Uh, and I think it, it's based in Catholic social teaching. Yeah, I think the, this idea of, of theology of the people, for the people, is very important, and it's something that, that comes through again and again in the way he talks about a, a cultural revolution that's required for individuals as well as the wider society. Uh, and, and so it's, it's about changing, changing inner hearts and minds, but it's done from the, from the perspective of someone who's, who is representing the, the margins and is representing perspectives from maybe those outside the church. So, you know, there's the, the, the Jewish, but also the indigenous and the Buddhist. And so it's the indigenous communities, which I think are particularly relevant for ecological questions and issues, because often they are romanticized somewhat in thinking about the natural world. And he did take some of that from Leonardo Boff, who's another very prominent liberation theologian who's thought through some of the ecological questions on ecology and poverty 
but he didn't go as far as him in speaking of Mother Earth, for example, in any explicit way. So there were some boundaries that he was across which he wasn't prepared to, to cross. So, so I think it's important to recognize that although he has this huge openness and generosity towards others and other religious traditions and other insights from other um, parties and so on, there's also a sense of boundariness as well. That so that he'll go so far, but not the full works, as it were. So I think that is also very interesting, and that's maybe why he he's he has such a huge following and popularity because people will recognise the limits as well as the the openness and the and the understanding of the others. There's your your issue of style rather than than content. I mean, the, the doctrine is pretty much standard Catholicism, but the style is very different. The, the public interpretation of it seems a bit away from that, though. People think that there's something else going on here, which is, is particularly interesting. Two, two examples here, both inside and outside. Um, he is, uh, Pope Francis has stated that he opposes Marxist versions of liberation theology, and yet he's dialogue with many liberation theologians, and, and, and recently uh, uh, the Archbishop of San Salvador, Oscar Romero, was beatified. Um, so, is he sort of straddling a line there, or is there an activist slant to his approach? Well, in terms of liberation theology, I mean, he draws heavily on many of the themes of liberation theology. What he's not enamored of, I think, is the kind of, I hate to use a professorial term, but the kind of the Marxist hermeneutic or the Marxist lens through which you have to see these things. I, I think his meaning that the, the sort of nineteen sixties and seventies sort right. of yes, political structures, exactly, that, right? Yeah. But but he would be very much in line with the the writings of say of our own Gustavo Gutierrez and whatnot, who who saw after he wrote this seminal book on liberation theology that there had to be a, a deeper spirituality to go with it, and then. When you get to books like We Drink From Our Own Wells and uh, books of that nature, he he takes those themes up. And I could see him very sympathetic. And one, one of the tests you can always use is how nervous are conservative Catholics? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, how nervous are they? Uh, they're kind of nervous, <laughs> you know. Uh, they, they run from uh, one website that I would think of not conservative but actually quite reactionary. Uh, it's a horror show as far as they're concerned, you know, is, is he undermining the papacy? Yeah. To kind of foot stamping and sniffing about and say the first things uh, crowd and so on, the, neo, the neocons and so on. Uh, they're just wondering, is, is this guy betraying the legacy of... Well, there are people who would identify Catholic moral teaching, especially with free market economics, you know, yeah. and I think in this country uh, this is more common than it is in most other parts of the world. It, as far as I understand Latin American theology and, and teaching, and I've never been to Argentina, I, I have the sense that what he's saying would not appear particularly strange mm -hmm. to most intellectual Argentines. But in this country, especially if you're from the University of Chicago, it does sound kind of strange. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and maybe I could add to that because I had some very interesting discussions in Rome with some people who knew him very well. And what they wanted to emphasize was the particular style of liberation theology which he stresses, which is in the Argentinian variety, rather than the, right. what I would call the standard dominant style of liberation theology that's much more explicit in its 
its political and Marxist kinds of aims. So he soft pedals, if you like, some of the the social and the structural changes that need to happen, although he's still very critical of them. And he emphasizes more the inner cultural revolution and the, and the theology of the people. And I think that's why he's also why he's very popular, but also why this is a slightly different strand of liberation theology. Yes, it's been aspects of that have been discussed by Gustavo Gutierrez here, but there's, there's, there's a sense in which this, this sort of vein of liberation theology hasn't been so widely recognized. Um, but, and, I, and I also think that the, the reaction ag against um, him here by some of the more conservative Catholics coming from someone who's lived in Europe has to do with a wrapping up of certain political aims with a certain branch of conservative Catholicism that I find extremely difficult to understand as someone coming from Europe. Um, well, would you say it's a little out of the thread of the more global Catholic identity? Yeah, I, th I, don't, I think on a global scale there's been no hostility or resistance to, to Pope Francis in the UK, even amongst those who are politically conservative. So it's a, it's a kind of glitch within, within the uh, political system here because climate change is associated with a certain politics in a way that it's not associated with in other parts of the world. And so it is a very odd sort of reaction, I think. But having said that, I think that, that he still has the capacity to win through hearts and minds by his charm and by his particular capacity to resonate with with the you know, basic teach, Catholic social teaching on the need to, to consider poverty and some of those big questions. So no one could deny that, and no one can really deny that he has the spirit of the Holy Spirit in him and the spirit of Christ and so on. And, and if you do do that, then in a sense you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot because, because, because it's obvious that he, that he is a man of God and that he's a man of prayer and that, that that depth of prayer comes through very strongly and even in his public um, displays of... Uh, of uh, his public meetings and his other public events. So, so I, I think that, um, as I said, coming from someone who hasn't lived in this country for as long as many others, I, I find some of the resistance very difficult to comprehend. He, there's some who've argued that it was an explicit political act for him to come and speak to uh, Congress. <laughs> yeah. 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 And wasn't it an interesting talk and wasn't it interesting the people that he kind of held up oh, yeah. um, uh, in the in the Congress uh, I, I, I was listening to it on the radio when he mentioned Thomas Merton I almost wrecked my car <laughs> because uh, uh, <laughs> because he and you were was, probably listening to NPR at the time <laughs> right <laughs> uh, and and Dorothy Day and um, and then going back into the Martin Luther King and going back into the 19th century I'm sure it was a kind of a puzzlement. I, I think the point that Celia makes, though, about the fact that this resistance to some of the ideas that um, Pope Francis has, whether on ecology or just say on economics, that uh, that strikes con very conservative Catholics in this country would not, by and large, bother people who were outside the United States of America. It's a peculiar American tick, I think. It's interesting that I gather he's regarded by most Argentinian intellectuals as being on the conservative just side. On the conservative And was the mortal enemy of President Kirchner, who just finished her term, yeah. who was a Marxist. She was a, a peronista on the left, I guess. <laughs> yeah. so. Well, 
if his appearance in the United States was political, but also can only in, be interpreted really by our own experience here in the U.S., um, he gains the same kind of immense popularity wherever he speaks, doesn't he? He does. He does. And I think we see that um, every time we turn the news on. This is Vantage Point from the University of Notre Dame. We'll be right back. Thing I referenced earlier, and I'd like to get your opinions on it. This is something that's sort of within Christianity, and, and maybe a lot of non-Christians are not familiar with it, but it's, it's, it's quite a major event. Pope Francis has made an effort to reconcile with the Orthodox Church. He is an ally of Bartholomew I of the Eastern Orthodox Church of Constantinople and has met and issued a joint declaration with the Russian Orthodox Patriarch of Moscow. Meeting with the head of the Russian Orthodox Church for the first time since the Great Schism of 1054, as far as I understand it. So this is a thousand, one in a thousand year event. What is going on here and, and what does that say for the sort of larger populace? We've got to de defer to Brian Daly on, <laughs> on this uh, particular topic now. Well, yeah, I've been involved in conversation between Catholics and Orthodox for a long time. And it is something which I think is very exciting for anybody who has been watching this. Um, the Catholic and Orthodox traditions are, as you know, in many ways very similar and have many similar features in their way of worship and in their doctrine, in their understanding of what it is to be a Christian. And so through the last couple of decades, both on the international level and in North America, we've come together, various groups of theologians, done joint statements on issues that were thought to be divisive, and in many ways, made a lot of progress in clearing up what may be doctrinal differences between us. And so the question then is, always arises, well, how can we move beyond simply saying, yes, we don't disagree as much as we thought we disagreed, to coming to some sort of institutional unity or, or liturgical unity? Can we come to the point where Catholic and Orthodox Christians can at least on some occasions share the Eucharist with each other, can go to each other's services and simply take part in things? And I think many people would welcome that and like to see it done. The question is, how does it happen? Who gives the signal? You need, in a sense, charismatic leaders who invite the populace to come to do that. Um, and I think, in a sense, with uh, Patriarch Bartholomew in Constantinople and Pope Francis, you do have two leaders who are, in many ways, very open to this, uh, more than simply polite to each other, who genuinely cherish each other and who would love to move closer with each other. The problem is that in the Orthodox world, the great uh, dominant population seems to be in the Russian Orthodox Patriarchate. The Patriarch of Constantinople mainly has jurisdiction over what are called diaspora churches like North America and Australia that are really not directly connected with him. And the meeting of the Pope and the Patriarch of Moscow, as you mentioned, was really unprecedented. Pope John Paul tried for his, pretty much his whole papacy to arrange a meeting like that. And it was always resisted. I think partly because he was Polish, uh, and there's always a certain you know, animosity between Polish and Russian nationals. Partly because I think people in Russia knew what a powerful public figure he could be. And also, I think, for reasons that they were not quite <coughs> ready to, to make this kind of move. But now, for whatever reasons one wants to advance, uh, the Russian patriarchate uh, were eager to do this. And certainly, uh, President Putin was encouraging towards this. And a lot of it seems to be part of his attempt to, to develop political um, influence in the West. 
So this is a change here in within uh, Christian politics, within the Christian world. This is a change in ecological politics in some ways, and a change in the way in which people see the role of the Catholic Church globally. Uh, is this a moment where we should seriously be considering an impact something along the lines of Vatican II for the role of Catholicism in the world outside of just Catholic practice? Well, I don't know what, quite what to say to that because, I mean, the, 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 the sense in which Vatican II happened was through a series of, of, of official meetings and, in other words, there was something formalized and ratified and then uh, Pope, um, Pope uh, John Paul XXIII, you know, his, his understanding was, was imprinted or implanted in that process as well, but he didn't last very long afterwards. And I, I'm not sure whether there will be anything like an official Vatican II or Vatican III because that's not really within the style of the, the current Pope. So I, I think he's taking a more softly, softly approach. So doing it by stealth, as it were, setting out these meetings and maybe the person who succeeds him will have more of the sort of formalized processes in mind when he, so maybe perhaps that's going to be the next Pope after him will try and implement this in some way to make it more formalized. But I have my doubts. I think he's more preparing the soil, as it were, for the seed that will be sown. That's my instinct anyway, although I said I'm not a, I'm not like um, Professor Daly, I'm not an expert in these fields. So, so I can only just comment as a, as a kind of non-expert theologian who's interested particularly in the ecological aspects as well of his ministry. And, and I do think that the, the fact that the, the Russian Orthodox Church has been divided um, within itself between the Greek and the, and the Russian, and that's a very well-known characteristic. And the fact that he's trying to heal those divisions in a, in a church that's not his own is really interesting and significant. Uh, is it not the case that the, that the Orthodox are going to have a a big meeting, a kind of a synod coming up uh, in June. The, yeah. In June, for in the Crete. first time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In so coming maybe. on the heels of this sort of discussion. Right. Well, that that then brings the sort of larger question: What do you think the responses are to Pope Francis by other world religions? I mean, we've seen a, a lot of news on that, but do you think this is going to shift or reshape the relationship between the Roman Catholics and and the rest of the world? Well, I think it's in. Uh, I think it has been reshaping before his time, well before his time. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when, <laughs> you know, you, you lived in separate little worlds. And uh, I mean, the idea, I, I, I never walked inside a Protestant church until I was in my 30s. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, it was just a, you know, a different ancient now long dead world. It took Vatican II, I think, to start the process, and then these long decades of, dec of uh, dialogues, uh, the kind of which uh, Father Daly has been involved in, and many others at many, many different levels, and also a greater willingness of people to work closely together in areas that, in, in which doctrine is not impinged upon, uh, work with the poor, work with the sick, uh, chaplaincies, and, and so on and so forth. And all those, I think, are great signs. With specific reference to the Orthodox, there are many historical and cultural problems, some of them may be even greater than the doctrinal problems. Uh, 
Uh, but this is a, a long, slow process. I, I think it would. I think it would be the most uh, utopian view of the world to think that all of a sudden, tomorrow, the Lutherans and the Catholics were going to be one church, or that the West and the East were going to join together. I think that's not the way things are going to go. Uh, I, I think that's right. I, I was at a meeting a few months ago in St. Louis, uh, and uh, of Orthodox and Catholic faithful. And one of the main speakers was an Orthodox bishop, a Greek Orthodox bishop, who comes from Gary, Indiana, but who's the bishop in Buenos Aires. Uh, a very interesting man. And he was at this, and I, we were both speaking at it. But speaking afterwards at the lunch, uh, you know, I asked him a lot about his own life in Buenos Aires. And when he got there a few years ago, Bergoglio, Cardinal Bergoglio was still the archbishop. And he said he had no idea what to do. He spoke some Spanish, but his, his uh, experience as a bishop was very limited. He didn't know the people or the churches. So he sent him an email and said, could I meet with you for just an hour and just get your take on the churches in Buenos Aires? And so Cardinal Bergoglio said, by all means, let's get together for lunch. And they did, and in fact, met every month from then on until he became pope. And he said, he became really my spiritual director. But he said, I, he gave me the whole understanding of what it is to be a bishop in Argentina, which I never would have thought otherwise. But I think on that practical level, doing that kind of thing, not issuing statements, but simply being available to people is this different style, which I think is, is where we need to be right now. Yes, yeah, so and maybe I can chip in with a bit of a, of a story as well. There's a, a friend of mine called Ante, Ante J. Jacqueline, who is the, the director of the Zygon Center for Theology and Science in Chicago, and then she got called to become a bishop in a Lutheran bishop in Sweden, and of course now she's the Archbishop of Sweden, and she's had several meetings uh, with Pope Francis, uh, as well as uh, meetings in Rome with other dignitaries and so on. And one of the things that she said to me, which I thought was really interesting, was that people respect her purple shirt. <laughs> so, uh, so in other words, they treat her as if she is a bishop and not somehow a non-person because she's a woman. And I think that was really interesting and significant. And of course. This is the year of celebrating the, the Reformation, and it's, some, and it's a place where Pope Francis has dared to tread. And it, it, so he's, he's prepared to kind of cross boundaries that maybe others would have, wouldn't have, have felt comfortable doing in, for the sake of pro, you know, communication between those of different denominations and, and so on. And, and, um, and I think that sort of spirit of generosity is there as well which I think is really important, uh, and we should sort of celebrate that as part of his ministry. So it's not just with the Orthodox, it's also with the Reformed traditions like the Lutheran and the Anglicans and so on. He might have a little bit more difficulty perhaps with the Pentecostals, because that comes from his own context where the Pentecostal church is rap expanding very rapidly in Latin America and taking over you know, those strongholds that used to be uh, the Catholic stronghold. So whether he sort of ventures into that uh, dialogue or not, I'm not so sure, but at least uh, it's a start. Well, what about um, thinking about the relationship uh, via Pope Francis with the Muslim world? Well, um, the first thing is there is a reality facing uh, Pope Francis, and it is this, that uh, the role, the place of Islam vis-a-vis -vis the Catholic Church is not a theoretical issue. In Europe, it's a practical issue. I mean, uh, one has to only read the newspaper to see this. I happen to see a little uh, thing, a, a side issue uh, uh, 
in Belgium a week ago, a reporter went into Molenbeek, which is the, the suburb where all of the uh, terrorists were coming from, and he went into a Catholic church, and he said there were some people who were going to evening mass there, but the priest was a Nigerian. The priest was from Nigeria. So here you had this traditional place that used to, like Ireland, export priests all over the world. And today they're coming back into this area, uh, coming back into Europe, and they're, they're the kind of the missionaries. Uh, I was in Rome a couple years ago. I was just really stunned by the number of people from Africa and the Middle East and whatnot that you find on the streets in every major uh, major city. So uh, one has to reconcile oneself to the fact that this is not, a, you know, this is not like, you know, Muslims in Arabia. This is Muslims in Brussels and Paris and London and uh, Rome and uh, so on and so forth. Um, and he's not insensitive to, to that fact. But, you know, I, I think, as we all know, it is much more difficult to initiate a kind of fruitful conversation between any Christian community and the Muslim world because the Muslim world doesn't have the sort of structural features that most Christian churches do. So who In the do sense you of the centralized, to, uh, centralized, coordinated, yeah. A clergy. I mean, you have different groups, different uh, sects and subgroups. Whom do you speak to? You have the nationalities be quite different. Uh, there are certainly many Muslim leaders who are very involved in conversation with Christian leaders and, and with whom it's been very fruitful. But uh, it's very difficult to generalize on that, I think. And what we see in the Middle East, what gets our attention in the media, is the strife and the, the conflict, which is also very real, obviously, and very dangerous. Yeah, maybe we should sort of remind ourselves too that peacemaking is the third main, one of the third main strands of his ministry, and so therefore he is concerned to build relationships of peace with those who are different, including the the Muslim community, however hard and fraught that might be. And I think that coming together around central questions around the environment, our common home, is a, an ideal way to try and do that because somehow you can over, overlook your differences of doctrine or dogma and and see the practical problem because it's a question of the survival of the human race and, uh, and I worked for an international consultancy of religion, education and culture before I started my academic career and it was clear to me working with different religious traditions and ecology that actually it was a collective effort that was really necessary um, in order to solve some of these big questions so I think Pope Francis also has that in mind in Laudato Si when he does open up this discussion to those of other faiths, because we don't have the luxury to, to be squeamish about our differences in the, in the face of the huge environmental problems that we face that are affecting the whole of the global community. So do you think his public voice or his presence that is welcoming or at least uh, open to engagement with others, do you think this is going to set a pace or a standard for the next pope? Well, one is hard put to predict what the next pope <laughs> is going to do. I mean, the, the uh, really interesting question to me is, will the next pope be a European? And if not a European, where might that next pope come from? It could well come from the African world. It could well come from, uh, you know, the, the non-Western world. Uh, we, we don't know the answer to that. Could I make a, one point about a constituency that we haven't talked about, and that is the great world of unbelief. Mm -hmm. um, 
which would describe an awful lot of people living in Europe, for example, that would be close to uh, the Pope. But and Francis he, seems to be very popular amongst that. Absolutely, and he also is very concerned to have a Christian voice, um, a Catholic voice in particular, that engages this world of unbelief. And one of the interesting things that's been going on in Rome, I don't know if you've followed it or not, is this uh, courtyard of the Gentiles, which Cardinal Ravasi, encouraged by the Pope, has started a whole series of dialogues in Europe precisely between intellectuals who are non-believers and believers themselves to talk about common concerns. And uh, this has been going on since the time of Benedict XVI. That would be a natural thing for him. But he's very open to that prospect. Yeah, you, you spoke before about the possibility of, of Vatican III or whatever we call it, another <laughs> big council. And I think most of us would agree that we're not quite there yet. But it seems to me that, in a sense, his big contribution is making this different style, this different approach to speaking to people who are not insiders in the Christian, the Catholic community, as a way of paving the road, paving the way for a different style of pope to become normal, uh, not to retreat back into the clerical uh, elite. Yeah, and I think that one of the things he wants to make sure about as well is that the corruption itself within the Vatican is, is irreversible in terms of the change. So, so in other words, cleaning that up and cleaning up the the internal workings of the church is a priority for him, and that, that's also been something that he's, he's shown a lot of courage and, and integrity in doing that. So, This has been Vantage Point from the University of Notre Dame. We've been joined by Professor Lawrence Cunningham, Father Brian Daly, Professor Celia Dean Drummond, all theologians letting us think through Pope Francis and Catholicism in the 21st century. From the University of Notre Dame, this is Vantage Point. Good night. Vantage Point Radio is wow. produced by Joe Stanfield wow. and Seamus Ronan. Please check us out on our website at vantagepointradio.nd.edu. And now subscribe to our podcast on iTunes at Vantage Point Radio. Vantage Point Radio is a production of the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame.